Turn to Mark chapter 9 if you're not already there. We live in a celebrity culture. Fame and recognition is maybe more valuable than anything in our culture, pursued even more highly than wealth or wisdom. Fame is synonymous with greatness. And our mantra in America seems to be, whatever it takes, achieve greatness. Jesus has something to say about greatness. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30 and moving through verse 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, so what were you arguing about on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. Once again, Mark is showing us that the disciples are not fully grasping his teaching as they are walking or beginning to walk in the kingdom. And we see this on repeat, and it's, it's discouraging to a degree because we often see ourselves in the disciples, that walking in the kingdom, seeing and perceiving is a difficult thing. It's, it's work, it's a journey, it, it will have its, its ups and its downs. That's what spiritual growth is. And so we might find ourselves discouraged as we, as we see the disciples struggle. We have to overcome so many preconceived notions and even false teachings that we've been inundated with, both from inside and outside the church, to truly, rightly see the kingdom of God, to perceive it and to walk in it. But this is also encouraging. Mark shows us all, right? He reveals the reality of the situation. It's not glossed over in any means. And we also are encouraged because we know the rest of the story. I hope you do. I hope you know that Jesus sticks with these 12, that God grows them, that they have a chance to fully be redeemed and renewed and to walk in his kingdom and ultimately to change the world through his power and authority with them. So we find hope and encouragement in seeing them in the midst of this time of struggle. And the contrasts continue. If you remember last week, we looked at the, the faith of the desperate father who brought his son to Jesus, who prayed one of the most powerful and profound prayers that we see anywhere in the scriptures. Jesus, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Keep praying that kind of a prayer because that faith is highlighted. His prayer is answered. Jesus heals the boy, delivers him, restores his life. The kingdom advances in power to this family through that prayer. Though it seems vulnerable, though it seems raw, though it seems that this man doesn't have strong faith like he should, he is honored and Jesus blesses. So we keep praying those kinds of prayers. 
the contrast to the disciples who are really continuing. They should be the ones to, to know Jesus in his kingdom. They've experienced his authority and his power, his healing, his miracles, and they're still struggling along. The contrast between these unexpected ones who ex- express maybe a little faith but are blessed and are received and welcomed by Jesus and the disciples who continue need to be taught and to grow. And in this next moment are arguing about who is the greatest amongst them. We can find ourselves shaking our head, but before we quickly judge, we're meant to take this story and hold it up like a mirror that we would ask, and this is what Mark wants us to ask, is who are we? Who am I in this story? Who are we collectively? How do we respond? Are we any different, ultimately, from these disciples as we come to walk in the kingdom, to see it and perceive it rightly? For the second time in this extended section, and there'll be a third time in this extended, you know, multiple chapters long section of Mark, Jesus foretells of his death. He says what is coming for him when he gets to Jerusalem. Not only what will happen, but what must happen. It's what he's been sent to do. He will yield his life. But there's hope in that. After three days, I will rise again. And it's almost like the ears of the disciples are clogged and they can't hear that part. They can't hear the hope. And they are afraid. And we wonder what they're afraid of. Are they afraid of what might happen to them if this happens to Jesus, who they're following? Perhaps. Is it possible they're also afraid of once again not getting it? being rebuked by Jesus, opening up their mouth and being told, you don't see, you don't perceive. Are they afraid of what Jesus might say. Peter said, the last time I challenged Jesus on this one, he called me Satan. I'm keeping my mouth shut here. Their ignorance seems to continue because they cannot grasp how the Messiah, the one who's come to rescue, to deliver, the one that they clearly believe is the sent one from God, how the path of deliverance for his people could be through the cross, through arrest, through death. That's that's been a struggle for all followers of Jesus throughout the ages to grasp the complexity of the cross and what that means and why it was essential to the hope of the gospel. The contrast of what we would want to hear from the disciples is what is the kind of prayer that we heard from the Father before Jesus. This is what the disciples should have brought to Jesus. Even in their fear, fear and faith are juxtaposed as a contrast in Mark They should have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, we believe you, but help us in our unbelief. We're struggling to grasp this. We're struggling to receive this. This is a hard teaching. We don't want this. Jesus would have met them there. He would have answered that prayer. That's vulnerability. That's transparency. Instead, they chose silence. Their fear silenced them, and I think this can happen to us. Our own fear can can hinder our prayers can keep us distanced from coming to the Lord, whether it's fear of truly following him in faith, of taking those steps of faith, or whether it's fear and uncertainty of not having it all together, of not being right, not appearing right. We have such a value back to our celebrity culture of getting it right, of appearing good, of putting on the right veneer, and we can be fearful of what it would mean to be truly vulnerable or transparent to not know, to say, I don't know, or I'm coming to know, to say my faith is, is weak when it should be strong. By now, to say my knowledge of God is, is less than I want it to be. And ultimately, there will always be more to discover and learn of who God is and walking in his kingdom. 
but to walk with that kind of transparency and vulnerability before our God and with one another is difficult for many of us. May we come. We are invited to come through this story in that transparency, with that humility, with that confession. I believe and help me in my unbelief. I still need to grow. Worse than the ignorance of the disciples is the arrogance that seems to be in them, expressed in this argument, this debate over who amongst them is the greatest. This dispute, this is twice now in this this passage where Jesus has to come to them and ask them, what are you arguing about? What are you debating? What, What is distracting you from the kingdom? And he seems to already know. Um, I found both encouragement and conviction in this question. I must be being formed into the image of Christ because I ask that question to my children. What are you arguing about? Like every single day. And so that's where the comparisons end (laughs) because Jesus calls the disciples to them, sits down with them and teaches them, invites them in. Uh, uh, Maybe I'm the only one, but I tend to try to parent from afar because I'm I'm doing something else when the, the argument and the bickering comes into the room. You wouldn't do that, right? You would pause everything. You would call your children to yourself. You would sit down with patience and compassion and composure and invite them into a discussion. Yes, conviction. Well, my kids, they're eight and nine. I should say that. I think most of you know them, but uh, believe it or not, pastors' kids are not born perfect. Uh, you know what good, good or great parenting produces? It's guaranteed to produce one thing, good and great parents. Well, my kids are not directly, I don't think they've ever used these words, arguing about which of them is the greatest. Essentially, that's the core of all of their disputes, of all of their bickering. Who is going to be right? Who is going to get their way first? Who is going to be seen as best? It's about greatness. And perhaps all arguments or disputes, even as adults, at their core, are about greatness. Who is going to be right, look best, be first, be honored? You want something, you don't get it, so you quarrel and fight, James says in James 4. It's about the desires of the heart. That's what's coming out here. I find this so ironic and embarrassing to the disciples, arguing amongst themselves, who is the greatest And Jesus is right there. Maybe walking out in front, maybe walking behind, I don't know. But he's right there in their midst and they're arguing who is the greatest. Oh, I don't know. How about the one that's just fed thousands upon thousands of people? How about the one who just drove out the demon? How about the one who walked on the water amongst us? And they're arguing amongst themselves. And you know, Peter, James, and John had some good evidence on their side. He keeps choosing us. He keeps inviting us to be with him, to be close. We were just on the mountain. We saw him transfigured in glory. And then we know Andrew probably stepped up and said, hey, we all know why Jesus keeps inviting you, Peter, and James, and John to be closest because you have the most to learn of all of us. And he's trying to keep his eye on you. Right? And you know Judas is sitting there going, who does he trust with the money Hello, 
And you know, Thomas says, I have no doubt that I am the greatest. But Peter's been waiting for the, whatever the equivalent of the Palestinian mic drop is and said, uh, yeah, which of you walked on water? And which one sank a moment later? And on and on they go, of course, right? We have to fill in the story of their argument. To be sure, the greatness that they were after and arguing about was not the greatness that we seem to pursue in our culture. The greatness of, of celebrity or fame or recognition or honor, the greatness they were pursuing, greatness for them in that, in that world was authority and power, was control. And we see that in some of their requests and through the rest of the story. Where will we be? What position will we have in, the, in your kingdom? What kind of control and authority and power will we have? That's what they're arguing about. In our culture, with this celebrity culture where fame is synonymous with greatness, we're not only taught that it's, it's a highest value for us, but we're taught that anyone can achieve it. Any one of us can have it. And we live in a culture that is striving for it. Not all cultures do this. I was listening to a podcast this week by a pastor I love listening to, Mark Sayers. He's an Australian pastor. I thought he summed it up aptly. He said, in, 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 a, in Australia, for example, Greatness is living a great life. And a great life comes with securities and comforts and pleasures, but family, community, a good job, but the freedom to, for entertainment, for recreation, that's, a, that's greatness. That's, that's their desire and their picture of greatness. And, and those in power and the government are there to support them in that life. Well, as the American culture, greatness is said to be your life. So succinctly, to say, some cultures pursue living a great life as greatness. Others pursue being great as greatness. And I thought that was an apt description of what we are taught to pursue, that we can become great. I can be great. And that celebrity culture has infiltrated, tragically, the American church throughout the ages. We continue to elevate our celebrity pastors and argue amongst ourselves which is the greatest. And if it's not a man or a person, then it's a ministry or a church. It's, it's the name, the name and the names that we have created. What about the name of Jesus in our midst? Does his name get honor and glory and fame? And maybe he is not in our midst. All of these views though are secular. They're not kingdom oriented. The disciples still did not have in mind the things of God, but the things of of men. And so whatever we pursue as greatness, Jesus has something to say about that. Jesus proclaims it is, t it is a totally other pursuit. It's the upside down kingdom. Again, this mantra of the kingdom is strikingly different. We do have to notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for the desire to be great, but he says greatness comes through service. Greatness comes through sacrifice. Greatness comes through welcoming and seeing the least of these, taking upon that form. That's what greatness is in the kingdom of God. Those that the world say, say are last will be first in the kingdom. Those that serve will be elevated and honored in God's priorities. Remember Jesus said of his cousin John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
John truly embodied those words. In John 3.30, he said, as Jesus came upon the scene, he said, he must become greater, I must become less. That's the, the posture of greatness in the kingdom. Jesus is the goat. He's the greatest of all time. And how does he do that? How does he model that and teach that through service, through giving himself to the last and least? The picture of wrapping the towel around his waist and washing the feet of his disciples when there was no other servant to do that of continually pouring himself out in compassion to the crowds, to be with them all day, sick, hurting, and needy people. And then ultimately, upon the cross, yielding his life to be mocked and spit upon, to be rejected and denied, to be betrayed and left, and to die in the lowest fashion as a common criminal amongst other criminals. I think the best and concise, most concise description of, of greatness is probably by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. And it's said to be the path to greatness for all who would walk in God's kingdom. The famous Philippians 2, 5 and following, maybe an ancient hymn of the, of the early church that they would sing these words. Your attitude, your mindset should be the same as that of Christ, who being in very nature God did not Consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Great, greatness, exaltation, through service, through humility, through sacrifice, becoming the last and the least. This is upside down for sure. When our world grasps for greatness through fame and recognition, doing whatever it takes, trying to seize it through power and through control, Jesus models a totally other way to exaltation, and to greatness. And then to drive home that point, he brings a child amongst them, brings him in his arms and says, this is the one to receive. And, and not just because a child was, was maybe ignorant or immature, although the disciples were acting somewhat like a, a child, but children in that society were overlooked, dismissed, not listened to, not considered at all. And Jesus sees them and welcomes them. And we know in the next section, in Mark chapter 10, verse 14, he says, let the little children come to me. So the children have been, been drawn to Jesus, something about his character and personality. They're flocking to him. The disciples are rebuking them. Get away, get away, just like anyone else in the society would. Stay in the, in the background. Do not make yourself seen or heard. That was a child's place. And Jesus is incensed by that. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. Welcome them. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. He took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. I think one of the great things about children often is their, their joy, their happiness, their curiosity. They're inquisitive. 
They have much less of a filter. They'll ask anything. They'll share anything in that innocence, in that joy, in that desire to know and to learn and to grow. We find the character of the kingdom, that we would receive it like that, that we would have that kind of faith and curiosity and joy and questioning and wonder for the kingdom. That is right and that is good. And here, Jesus is teaching his disciples this is an upside-down kingdom for sure, that true greatness takes the posture that the world would never take. It takes the posture of a child. But even more, it's the welcoming of the last and the least. It's the welcoming of those that are dismissed or dishonored or removed from society. And Jesus says, as you welcome a little child in my name, you welcome me, you receive me. And not only me, but the one who sent me, God himself is in your midst. As you see children, receive them, welcome them and bless them. Cue the announcement for volunteering in our kids' ministry. Not only an honor to all of you who serve and give to care for our, our little ones, our toddlers and our older kids to teach them. And it does take a community to do that. And we're doing well. But not only do we and they need you as adults to see them, welcome them and receive them, you need them. We need children. We need to see the kingdom through their eyes. And not only in a way to bless and raise them up in the way of the Lord. But in doing so, we receive and welcome the presence of God himself. Is that not an upside down kingdom mindset? The very presence of God is in our midst as we welcome and receive. Now I believe that's absolutely true for children. I don't think it's only children that Jesus would say that's the place of the kingdom. As you see and welcome those who are marginalized by society, overlooked, dismissed, devalued, quieted, not listened to, not honored, not elevated, as you see and welcome those, you receive the presence of Jesus. He is there in your midst, even God himself. That is the way of the kingdom. When we build these tiny homes, and we send them to those in need who we may never meet, praying for those kind of connections or that, that connection to continue with that village and those people. But if we, if we don't, we are still sane with that effort and that gift. We see you. We welcome you. We welcome the spirit of God into that place, the spirit of the kingdom into that refuge place. Out of our own need as well, as we do so, we receive the spirit of Jesus and God amongst us. So we don't just give out of our generosity or out of our abundance, which is right and which is good. God calls us to steward and those that are faithful for the little will be given more and that is right. Those are kingdom values. We give out of our need. We give out of our need to receive the presence of God himself. That's why we partake in his kingdom ways. As we light up this corner, we invite the community to celebrate light and hope and joy, especially in darkness 
in a time of sadness for many or brokenness of family or relationships. We are saying we see you. We welcome you. This space is for you. And not only does Jesus and his presence and his kingdom come for those in our community, it comes for us. It dwells with us. As we give these Thanksgiving meals to those that otherwise would would not celebrate Thanksgiving with food, we bless, we say, we see you. We welcome you. We receive you. Out of the abundance, yes, of what God has given, we want to be faithful with that, but it's out of our need. We need the presence of Jesus amongst us. We pray you sense it as well. But we receive the presence of Jesus and the presence of God himself. As I mentioned last week, as, as an aside, I, I hear this often, this either pain or frustration or lament that, I, that one feels distant from God. I feel like he's not close. I feel like my prayers are going into the air. I feel like reading the scriptures is like sandpaper to my soul. And while there may be many reasons for that, we know in the promises of Jesus where he dwells, where God is. And we enter into those spaces and we wonder Am I, am I welcoming like that? Am I seeing like that? Am I in that place of the kingdom? May it be with the last and the least and the overlooked and the marginalized. Am I pausing? Am I listening? Am I welcoming? And as we do so, out of great need for the presence of God himself, he meets us and blesses us. So give and serve and welcome this season because we need God in our midst. This is why our desire to be a church without walls is so vital. And not just to see beyond ourselves to our broader community and world in need, and that's right and that's good, but to not put any barriers between any peoples and coming to draw near to Jesus, to be in his presence, to be welcomed by him and known by him. And as we enter into those kingdom rhythms, praying for humility to do so, we also receive the presence of God. And there is nothing greater in all the world. And that greatness in the presence of God is transformative for all things. Welcoming is not passive. Hospitality is not mere niceness or courtesy. It is active. It is intentional. It is, I see you and welcome you. It is, come, sit here at this seat. Sit with me and my family. Is there anything I can do for you today? For all peoples. Because God's presence will be there as we welcome like that. Both for our joy and we pray for the joy of others. That's why we've gathered. That's why we gather at all times. Because there's nothing greater than welcoming and receiving the very God of this universe, our Father, through the Spirit of His Son. Let's pray. God, we welcome You in the name of Jesus. Open our eyes and our hearts to see and receive. Keep us humble, we pray. Teach us to welcome the least of these as You've welcomed us. Teach us to serve and to give out of your abundance through us 
for your glory, for your fame, and in your name, your holy name, we pray. Amen.